1: to my show on civil rights. My name is Barbara Bullen and I'm one of the radio hosts for the New Heights Show on Education and the New Heights Educational Group. I hope you enjoy the show and am asking our listeners to consider becoming a sponsor. This show is pre-recorded. This show is based on Elizabeth, Katie, Stanton, writer, suffragist, Woman's rights activist, and and abolitionist, one of many radio shows which will be aired. Taken from wikipedia.org Elizabeth Cady Stanton, November the 12th, 1815 to October the 26th, 1902, was an American writer and activist who was a leader of the women's rights movement in the United States during the mid to late 19th century. She was the main force behind the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention, the first convention to be called for the sole purpose of discussing women's rights and was the primary author of its Declaration of Sentiments. Her demand for women's right to vote generated a controversy at the convention but quickly became a central tenant of the women's movement. She was also active in other social reform activities, especially abolitionism. In 1851, she met Susan B. Anthony and formed a decades-long partnership that was crucial to the development of the women's right movement. During the American Civil War, they established the Women's Loyal National League to campaign for the abolition of slavery and they led it in the largest petition drive in United States history up to that time. They started a newspaper called The Revolution in 1868 to work for women's rights. After the war, Stanton and Anthony were the main organizers of the American Equal Rights Association, which campaigned for equal rights for both African Americans and women especially the right of suffrage. When the 15th Amendment to to the United States Constitution was introduced that would provide suffrage for black men only, they opposed it, insisting that suffrage should be extended to all African Americans and all women at the same time. Others in the movement supported the amendment, resulting in a split. During the bitter arguments that led up to the split, stanton sometimes expressed her ideas in elitist and racially condescending language for which her old friend frederick frederick douglas reproached her stanton became the president of the national women's suffrage association which she and anthony created to represent their wing of the movement when the split was healed more than 20 years later stanton became the first president of the united organization the National American Women Suffrage Association. This was largely an honorary position. Stanton continued to work on a wide range of women's rights issues, despite the organization's increasingly tight focus on women's right to vote. Stanton was the primary author of the first three volumes of The History of Women's Suffrage, a massive effort to record the history of the movement focusing largely on her wing of it. She was also the primary author of the Women's Bible, a critical examination of the Bible that is based on the premise that his attitude towards women reflects prejudice from a less civilized age. Stanton received a better education than most women of her era. She attended Johnstown Academy in her hometown until the age of 15. The only girl in its advanced classes in mathematics and languages she won second prize in the school's greek competition and became a skilled debater she enjoyed her years at the school and said she did not encounter any barriers there because of her sex she was made sharply aware of society's low expectations for women when elisa her last surviving brother died at the age of 20. Just after graduating from Union College in Schenectady, New York, her father and mother were incapacitated by grief. The ten-year-old Stanton tried to com- comfort her father, saying she would try to be all her brother had been. Her father said, "Oh, my daughter, I wish you were a boy." Stanton had many educational opportunities as a young child. The neighbor, Reverend S- Simon, Kozak taught her Greek and mathematics. Edward Bayard, her brother-in-law and Elisa's former classmate at Union College, taught her philosophy and horsemanship. Her father brought her law books to study, so she could participate in debates with his law clerks at the diner table. She wanted to go to college, but no colleges at that time accepted female students, moreover Her father initially decided she did not need further education. He eventually agreed to enroll her in the Troy Female Seminary in Troy, New York, which was founded and run by Emma Willard. In her memoirs, Stanton said that during her student days in Troy, she was greatly disturbed by a six-week religious revival conducted by Charles Grandison Finney, an an evangelical preacher, and central figure in the revivalist movement, his preaching combined with the Calvinistic Presbyterianism of her childhood terrified her with the possibility of her own damnation. Fear of judgment seized my soul. Visions of the lost haunted my dreams. Mental anguish prostrated my health. Stanton credited her father and brother-in-law with convincing her to disregard Finney's warnings. She said they took her on a six-week trip to Niagara Falls during which she read works of rational philosophers who restored her reason and sense of balance. Laurie D. Ginsburg, one of Stanton's biographers, says there are problems with the story. For one thing, Finney did not preach for six weeks in Troy while Stanton was there. Ginsburg suspects that Stanton embellished a childhood memory to underline her belief that women harm themselves by falling under the spell of religion. As a young woman, Stanton traveled often to the home of her cousin, Gerrit Smith, who also lived in upstate New York. His views were very different from those of her conservative father. Smith was an an abolitionist and a member of the Secret Six, a group of men who financed John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, in an effort to spark an armed uprising of enslaved African-Americans. At Smith's home, she met Henry Brewster Stanton, a prominent abolitionist agent. Despite her father's reservations, the couple married in 1840, omitting the word, obey, from the marriage ceremony. Stanton later wrote, I obstinately refused to obey one with whom I supposed I was entering into an equal relation. While uncommon, this practice was not unheard of. Quakers had been omitting obey from the marriage ceremony for some time. Stanton took her husband's surname as part of her own, signing herself Elizabeth Cady Stanton or E. Cady Stanton, but not Mrs. Henry B. Stanton. Soon after returning from the European honeymoon, the Stantons moved into the Cady household in Johnstown. Henry Stanton studied law under his father-in-law until 1843, when the Stantons moved to Boston, Chelsea, Massachusetts, where Henry joined a law firm. While living in Boston, Elizabeth enjoyed the social, political, and intellectual stimulation that came with a constant round of abolitionist gatherings. Here, she was influenced by such people as Frederick Douglass, William Lord Garrison, and Ralph Waldo Emerson. In 1847, the Stantons moved to Seneca Falls, New York, in the Finger Lakes region. Their house, which is now a part of the Women's Rights National Historical Park, was purchased for them by Elizabeth's father. The couple had seven children. At that time, childbearing was considered to be a subject that should be handled with great delicacy. Stanton took a different approach raising a flag in front of her house after giving birth a red flag for a boy and a white one for a girl one of her daughters Harriet Stanton Blatch became like her mother a leader of the women's suffrage movement because of the spacing of their children's births one historian has concluded that the Stantons must have used birth control methods Stanton herself said her children were conceived by what she called voluntary motherhood. In an era when it was commonly held that a wife must submit to her husband's sexual demands, Stanton believed that women should have command over their sexual relationships and childbearing. She also said, however, that a healthy woman has as much passion as a man. Stanton encouraged both her sons and daughters to pursue a broad range of interests, activities and learning. She was remembered by her daughter Margaret as being cheerful, sunny and indulgent. She enjoyed motherhood and running a large household, but she found herself unsatisfied and even depressed by the lack of intellectual companionship and stimulation in Seneca Falls. During the 1850s, Henry's work as a lawyer and politician kept him away from home for nearly 10 months out of every year. This frustrated Elizabeth when the children were small because it made it difficult for her to travel. The pattern continued in later years, with husband and wife living apart more often than together, maintaining separate households for several years. Their marriage, which lasted 47 years, ended with Henry Stanton's death in 1887. Both Henry and Elizabeth were staunch abolitionists, but Henry, like Elizabeth's father, Disagreed with the idea of female suffrage, one biographer described Henry as, at best, a half-hearted women's rights man. While on their honeymoon in England in 1840, the Stantons attended the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. Elizabeth was appalled by the convention's male delegates who voted to prevent women from participating even if they had been appointed as delegates of their respective abolitionist societies. The men required the women to sit in a separate section, hidden by curtains from the convention's proceedings. William Lord Garrison, a prominent American abolitionist and supporter of women's rights, who arrived after the vote had been taken, refused to sit with the men and sat with the women instead. Lucretia Mott, a Quaker minister, abolitionist and women's rights advocate, was one of the women who had been sent as a delegate. Although Mott was much older than Stanton, they quickly bonded in an enduring friendship with Stanton, eagerly learning from the more experienced activists. While in London, Stanton heard Mott preach in a Unitarian chapel. The first time Stanton had heard a woman give a sermon or even speak in public, Stanton later gave credit to this convention for focusing her interest on women's rights. An accumulation of experiences was having an effect on Stanton. The London Convention had been a turning point in her life. Her study of law books had convinced her that legal changes were necessary to overcome gender inequities. She had personal experience of the stultifying role of women as wives and housekeepers. She said, The wearied, anxious look of the majority of women impressed me, with a strong feeling that some active measures should be taken to remedy the wrongs of society in general and of women in particular this knowledge however did not immediately lead to action relatively isolated from other social reformers and fully occupied with household duties she was at a loss as to how she could engage in social reform in the summer of 1848 Lucretia and Mott traveled from Pennsylvania to attend a Quaker meeting near the Stantons' home. Stanton was invited to visit with Mott and three other progressive Quaker women. Finding herself in sympathetic company, Stanton said she poured out her long accumulating discontent with such vehemence and indignation that I stirred myself as well as the rest of the party to do and dare anything. The gathered women agreed to organize a women's rights convention in Seneca Falls a few days later while Mott was still in the area. Stanton was the primary author of the convention's Declaration of Rights and Sentiments, which was modeled on the United States Declaration of Independence. His list of grievances included the wrongful denial of women's right to vote, signaling Stanton's intent to generate a discussion of women's suffrage at the convention. This was a highly controversial idea at the time, but not an entirely new one. Her cousin Gerrit Smith, no stranger to radical ideas himself, had called for women's suffrage shortly before at the Liberty League convention in Buffalo. When Henry Stanton saw the inclusion of women's suffrage in the document, he told his wife that she was acting in a way that would turn the proceedings into a farce. Lucretia Mott, the main speaker was also disturbed by the proposal. An estimated 300 women and men attended the two-day Seneca Falls Convention. In a first address to a large audience, Stanton explained the, pros- the purpose of the gathering and the importance of women's rights. Following a speech by Mart, Stanton read the Declaration of Sentiments, which the attendants were invited to sign. Next came the resolutions. All of which the convention adopted unanimously except for the ninth, which read, It is the duty of the women of this country to, to secure to themselves the sacred right of the elective franchise. Following a vigorous debate, this resolution was adopted only after Frederick Douglass, an abolitionist leader who had formerly been enslaved, gave it his strong support. Stanton's sister Harriet attended the convention and signed its Declaration of Sentiments. Her husband, however, made her remove her signature. Although this was a local convention organized on short notice, its controversial nature ensured that it was widely noted in the press with articles appearing in newspapers in New York City, Philadelphia and many other places. The Seneca Falls Convention is now recognized as an historic event the first convention to be called for the purpose of discussing women's rights. The convention's declaration of sentiments became the single most important factor in spreading news of the women's rights movement around the country in 1848 and into the future. According to Judith Wellman, a historian of the convention, the convention initiated the use of women's rights conventions as organizing tools for the early women's movement. By the time of the second National Women's Rights Convention in 1851, the demand for women's right to vote had become a central tenet of the United States Women's Rights Movement.
0: Right now, you might be struggling through your classes or even failing them. You might be worried that you may not finish high school. There might have even been a thought that you may not be smart enough. Well, the New Heights Educational Group begs to differ. We not only think you are smart enough, but with our help you will complete your high school diploma. The New Heights Educational Group strives to improve your academic success through its tutoring services. To learn more, please visit newheightseducation.org and contact us. New Heights Educational Group, educational resources to help reach your goals.
1: Hello listeners, if you're enjoying the New Heights show on education and want to support or donate to our organization, please visit www.NewHeightsEducation.org. And while you're there, check out our online store. Welcome back to the New Heights Show in Education. My name is Barbara Bullen, and I'm the radio host for this show. This show is pre-recorded and focuses on the history of civil rights. The continuation of the first segment of the show on Elizabeth Cady Stanton will continue. A Rochester Women's Rights Convention was held in Rochester, New York two weeks later, organized by local women who had attended the one in Seneca Falls. Both Stanton and Mott spoke at this convention. The convention in Seneca Falls had been chaired by James Mott, the husband of Lucretia Mott. The Rochester Convention was chaired by a woman, Abigail Bush, another historic first. Many people were disturbed by the idea of a woman chairing a convention of both men and women. How, for example, might people react if a woman ruled a man out of order?
0: Imagine your new bathroom New on Curiosity Stream. This bear's walking right at me. We'll see if he wants trouble or not. Follow filmmaker Casey Anderson as he gets an unprecedented face to face look at Alaska's fiercest carnivores on the Tracker's Diary Bears of Katmai. Plus, why is a tiny island in the Pacific one of America's most crucial outposts? Discover the truth behind this mysterious trans Pacific stopover on Extremity's Wake Island. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com.
1: Stanton herself spoke in opposition to the election of a woman as the chair of this convention, although she later acknowledged her mistake and apologized for her action. When the first National Women's Rights Convention was organized in 1850, Stanton was unable to attend because she was pregnant. Instead, she sent a letter to the convention entitled, Should Women Hold Office? That outlined the movement's goals. The later emphatically endorsed women's right to hold office, stating that women might have a purifying, elevating, softening influence on the political experiment of our republic. Thereafter, it became a tradition to open National Women's Rights Convention with a letter by Stanton, who did not participate in person in a national convention until 1860. While visiting Seneca Falls in 1851, Susan B. Anthony was introduced to Stanton by Amelia Gloomer, a mutual friend and a supporter of women's rights. Anthony, who was five years younger than Stanton, came from a Quaker family that was active in reform movements. Anthony and Stanton soon became close friends and co-workers, forming a relationship that was a turning point in their lives and of great importance to the women's movement. The two women had complementary skills. Anthony excelled at organizing, while Stanton had had an aptitude for intellectual matters and writing. Stanton later said, in writing, we did better work together than either could alone. While she is slow and analytical in composition, I'm rapid and synthetic. I am the better writer, she the better critic. Anthony deferred to Stanton in many ways throughout their years of work together, not accepting an office in any organisation that would place her above Stanton. In their letters, they refer to one another as Susan and Mrs. Stanton. Because Stanton was homebound with seven children, while Anthony was unmarried and free to travel, Anthony assisted Stanton by supervising her children while Stanton wrote. Among other things, this allowed Stanton to write speeches for Anthony to give. One of Anthony's biographers said, Susan became one of the family and was almost another mother to Mrs. Stanton's children. One of Stanton's biographers said, Stanton provided the ideas, rhetoric and strategy. Anthony delivered the speeches, circulated petitions and rented the halls. Anthony prodded and Stanton produced. Stanton's husband said, Susan stir the puddings, Elizabeth stirred up Susan, and then Susan stirs up the world. Stanton herself said, I forged the thunderbolts. She fired them. By 1854, Anthony and Stanton had perfected a collaboration that made the New York State movement the most sophisticated in the country according to Anne D Gordon, a professor of women's history. After the Stantons moved from Seneca Falls to New York City in 1861, a room was set aside for Anthony in every house they lived in. One of Stanton's biographers estimated that over her lifetime, Stanton spent more time with Anthony than with any other adult, including her own husband. In December 1865, Stanton and Anthony submitted the first women's suffrage petition directed to Congress during the drafting of the 14th Amendment. The women challenged the use of the word male in the version, submitted to the states for ratification. When Congress failed to remove the language, Stanton announced her candidacy, candidacy as the first woman to run for Congress in October 1866. She ran as an independent and secured only 24 votes, but her candidacy sparked conversations surrounding women's office holdings separate from suffrage. In December 1872, Stanton and Anthony each wrote new departure memorials to Congress and were invited to read their memorials to the Senate Judiciary Committee. This further brought women's suffrage and office-holding to the forefront of Congress's agenda, even though the New Departure agenda was ultimately rejected. The relationship was not without its strains, especially as Anthony could not match Stanton's charm and charisma. In 1871, Anthony said, whoever goes into a parlour or before an audience with that woman does it at the cost of a fearful overshadowing, a price which I have paid for the last ten years, and that cheerfully, because I felt that our cause was most profited profited by her being seen and heard, and my best work was making the way clear for her. Excessive consumption, consumption of alcohol was a severe social problem during this period, one that began to diminish only in the 1850s. Many activists considered temperance to be a women's rights issue because of laws that gave husbands complete control of the family and its finances. The law provided almost no recourse to a woman with a drunken husband, even if this condition left the family destitute and he was abusive to her and their children. If she managed to obtain a divorce, which was difficult to do, he could easily end up with sole guardianship of their children. In 1852, Anthony was elected as a delegate to the New York State Temperance Convention. When she tried to participate in the discussion, the chairman stopped her saying that women delegates were there only to listen and learn. Years later, Anthony observed, No advance step taken by women has been so bitterly contested as that of speaking in public. But nothing which they have attempted, not even to secure the suffrage, have they been so abused, condemned, and antagonized. Anthony and other women walked out and announced their intention to organize a Women's Temperance Convention. Later that year, about 500 women met in Rochester and created the Women's State Temperance Society with Stanton as President and Anthony as State Agent. This leadership arrangement with Stanton in the public role as president and Anthony as the energetic force behind the scenes was characteristic of the organizations they founded in later years. In her first public speech since 1848, Stanton delivered the convention's keynote keynote address, one that antagonized religious conservatives. She called for drunkenness to be legal grounds for divorce at a time when many conservatives opposed divorce for any reason, she appealed for wives of drunken husbands to take control of their marital relations, saying, "Let no woman remain in relation of wife with a confirmed drunkard. Let no drunkard be the father of her children." She attacked the religious establishment, calling for women to, to donate their money to the poor instead of to the education of young men for the ministry for the building up a theological aristocracy and gorgeous temples to the unknown God. At the organization's convention the following year, conservatives voted Stanton out as president, whereupon she and Anthony resigned from the organization. Temperance was not a significant reform activity for Stanton afterwards. Although she continued to use local temperance societies in the early 1850s as conduits for advocating women's rights. She regularly wrote articles for the Lily, a monthly temperance newspaper that she helped transform into one that reported news of the women's rights movement. She also wrote for the Una, a women's rights periodical edited by Paulina Wright Davis, and for the New York Tribune, a daily newspaper edited by Horace Greeley. The status of married women at that time was in part set by English common law, which for centuries had set the doctrine of coverture in local courts. It held, wives were under the protection and control of their husbands. In the words of William Blackstone's 1769 book, Commentaries on the Laws of England, by marriage, the husband and wife are one person-in-law, that is, The very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage. The husband of a married woman became the owner of any property she brought into a marriage. She could not sign contracts, operate a business in her own name, or retain custody of their children in the event of a divorce. In practice, some American courts followed the common law. Some southern states like Texas and Florida provided more equality for women. Across the country, state legislatures were taking control away from common law traditions by passing legislation. In 1836, the New York legislature began considering a Married Women's Property Act with women's rights advocate, Ernestine Rose, an early supporter who circulated petitions in its favor. Stanton's father supported this reform. Having no sons to pass his considerable wealth to, he was faced with the prospect of having it eventually passed to the control of his daughter's husbands. Stanton circulated petitions and lobbied legislators in favour of the proposed law as early as 1843. The law eventually passed in 1848. It allowed a married woman to retain the property that she possessed before the marriage or acquired during the marriage and it protected her property from her husband's creditors. Enacted shortly before the Seneca Falls Convention, it strengthened the women's rights movement by increasing the ability of women to act independently. By weakening the the traditional belief that husbands spoke for their wives, it assisted many of the reforms that Stanton championed, such as the right of women to speak in public and to vote. In 1853, Susan B. Anthony organized a petition campaign in New York State for an improved property rights law for married women. As part of the presentation of these petitions to the legislature, Stanton spoke in 1854 to a joint session of the Judiciary Committee arguing that voting rights were needed to enable women to protect their newly won property rights. In 1860, Stanton spoke again to to the Judiciary Committee, this time before a large audience in the Assembly Chamber, arguing that women's suffrage was the only protection for married women, their children and their material assets. She pointed to similarities in the legal status of women and slaves, saying, the prejudice against colour, of which we hear so much, is no stronger than that against sex. It is produced by the same cause and manifested very much in the same way. The Negro skin and the women's sex are both prima facie evidence that they were intended to be in subjection to the white Saxon man. The legislature passed an improved law in 1860. Stanton had already antagonized traditionalists in 1852 at the Women's Temperance Convention by advocating a woman's right to divorce a drunken husband. In an hour-long speech at the 10th National Women's Rights Convention in 1860, she went further, generating a heated debate that took up an entire session. She cited tragic examples of unhealthy marriages, suggesting that some marriages amounted to legalized prostitution. She challenged both the sentimental and the religious views of marriage, defining marriage as a civil contract subject to the same restrictions of any other contract. If a marriage did not produce the expected happiness, she said, then it would be a duty to end it. Strong opposition to her speech was voiced in the ensuing discussion. Abolitionist leader Wendell Phillips arguing that divorce was not a woman's rights issue because it affected both women and men equally, said the subject was out of order and tried unsuccessfully to have it removed from the record. In later years on the lecture circuit, Stanton's speech on divorce was one of her most popular drawing audiences of up to 1,200 people. In an 1890 essay entitled Divorce Versus Domestic Warfare," Stanton opposed calls by some women activists for stricter divorce laws, saying, the rapidly increasing number of divorces, far from showing a lower state of morals, proves exactly the reverse. Women is in a transition period from slavery to freedom, and she will not accept the conditions in married life that she has heretofore meekly endured. In 1860, Stanton published a pamphlet called The Slave's Appeal, written from what she imagined to be the viewpoint of a female slave. The fictional speaker uses vivid religious language, men and women of New York, the God of Thunder speaks through you. That expresses religious views very different from those that Stanton herself held. The speaker describes the horrors of slavery saying, the trembling girl for whom thou didst pay a price, but yet stay in a New Orleans market, is not thy lawful wife. Foul and damning both to the master and the slave is a wholesale violation of the immutable laws of God. The pamphlet calls for defiance of the Federal Fugitive Slave Act and it included petitions to be used for opposing the practice of hunting escaped slaves. In 1861, Anthony organized a tour of abolitionist lecturers in upstate New York that included Stanton and several other speakers. The tour began in January, just after South Carolina had succeeded from the Union, but before other states had succeeded and before the outbreak of war. In her speech, Stanton said that South Carolina was like a willful willful son whose behavior jeopardized the whole family and that the best course of action was to let it succeed. The lecture meetings were repeatedly disrupted by mobs, operating under the belief that abolitionist activity was causing southern states to succeed. Stanton was not able to participate in some of the lectures because she had to return home to her children. At her husband's urging, she left the lecture tour because of the persistent threat of violence. In 1863, Anthony moved into the Stanton's house in New York City, and the two women began organizing the Women's Loyal National League to campaign to campaign for an amendment to the United States Constitution that would abolish slavery. Stanton became president of the new organization, and Anthony was secretary. It was the first national woman's political organization in the United States. The largest petition drive in the nation's history up to that time the League collected nearly 400,000 signatures to abolish slavery, representing approximately one out of every 24 adults in in the Northern States. The petition drive significantly assisted the passage of the 13th Amendment which ended slavery. The League disbanded in 1864 after it became clear that the amendment would be approved. Although its purpose was the abolition of slavery, the League made it clear that it also stood for political equality for women, approving approving a resolution at its founding convention that called for equal rights for all citizens, regardless of race or sex. The League indirectly advanced the cause of women's rights in several ways. Stanton pointedly reminded the public that petitioning was the only political tool available to women at a time when only men were allowed to vote. The success of the League's petition drive demonstrated the value of formal organization to the women's movement, which had traditionally resisted being anything other than loosely organized up to that point. Its 5,000 members constituted a widespread network of women activists who gained experience that helped create a pool of talent for future forms of social activism, including suffrage. Stanton and Anthony emerged from this endeavour with significant national reputations. This comes to the conclusion of the show. The next show will be on the continuation of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's where the American Equal Rights Association and other issues will be discussed. Thank you for listening. You can reach me by email, Barbara B at newheightseducation.org. Be sure to join me every Sunday at radio.newheightseducation.org, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, as I discuss the history of civil rights. Also join Olenian Tabot's pre-recorded radio show, which airs by Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and Pamela Clark's pre-recorded shows, which airs Wednesday by 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Civil Rights is Our Right.